Thank you, Sam. We are going to pray, uh, but before we do, just a brief announcement and update. Yesterday, uh, Spencer Schrock went into an early labor and was taken by, or by ambulance to the hospital for an emergency C-section. And she is doing okay and recovering. The baby, though, did not survive. So uh, it's with heavy hearts that this morning we uh, come to the Lord uh, on behalf of them and uh, lift them up as they are now uh, dealing with the reality of instead of bringing home a baby, uh, they have to deal with the sting of death. So let's pray. Father God, sometimes we don't even know where to begin. And our hearts are heavy this morning uh, with the news of the Shrocks baby. You are a good God, but your ways are hard to understand. And at times we are left speechless, questioning your goodness. This morning we lift up the Shrocks, Lord. You are a God who is ever-present in times of trouble. And they are now dealing with the greatest trouble that a parent could ever endure. Lord, we beg you to be faithful to them. To not leave them in this hour, but to reveal yourself to them very clearly. Comfort them, Lord, with the comfort of a God who knows their pain deeply. Who knows what it's like to have a child die. In the days and weeks ahead, Lord, give us wisdom as a church on how to minister your love to them. May we wisely walk the delicate balance of silence and action, of sitting and doing. Give us eyes and ears to know when to talk and when to listen. And may we become more faithful, more loving, and more caring in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you that you give us opportunities to express your faithfulness as we are your hands and feet. And while we grieve this loss of life, Lord, we also celebrate new life. We thank you for the birth of Esme Genevieve Kishner yesterday. We thank you that no matter what happens in the lives of your people, you care deeply for them, and we pray that the Kishners would constantly find peace throughout the struggles of parenting. Oh God, would you give us hope for what you are doing in this world? Lord, through our lives, a, a hope, Lord, that would last into eternity. Even now, as we come to the preaching of your word, Lord, we pray for, for that peace and that hope to be very clear to us. Amen. Amen. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, and it is good to be here with you. Um, it's good to be in the midst of the congregation as we process through difficult things together, as we learn what it means to be faithful in all things, as we learn to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. So my hope and my prayer this morning is that um, as we grieve, as we 
process in our own ways um, that the Lord is glorified in the midst, that his gospel is proclaimed, and that we find the comfort that we need uh, in these moments in the hope of the gospel. And so we're going to continue studying through the book of Joshua, and we're going to start in chapter 4. I'm going to invite you guys to uh, turn there with me, if you would. I remember I had just woken up, and I had put on my North Carolina Michael Jordan jersey, my special school pants, got a special buckle built in, they were really fancy. And I put on my perfectly white Adidas Superstar 2Ks. It was still close to the beginning of the school year, so they were perfectly white. And I walked out of my room to find my mom and my dad in front of our massive 24-inch TV, sobbing. It was around 7 a.m. Pacific time, and my dad walked over to me and he said, Son, we're not really sure what's going on, but two planes have crashed into the the Twin Towers, and they're not really sure what's happening, but many people have died. I remember staring at the screen and watching as they replayed the clips of the planes crashing into the towers and footage of the first tower falling. And I remember grabbing a bowl of cereal and eating it standing in the living room, glued to the coverage. It was almost time for me to go to school, so I ran in and started combing my hair and brushing my teeth. And I heard a muffled scream come from the living room, and I rushed out, and I saw the second tower collapse live on TV. And I'll never forget seeing those images on the TV screen. I even remember, like I said, what I was wearing. But believe it or not, this is going to make some of you feel really, really old. It has now been at least four years since I've had any high school students that were born before 2001, let alone remember the event happening. But the collective memory in this country still remains. We remind ourselves with t-shirts and bumper stickers. We remind ourselves with commemorative patches and novelty prints. We have even erected massive memorials that will last for a very long time. So that whenever a tourist visits New York City, they'll be reminded of the horror and the heroism of that day. We will never forget our country has promised to those heroes of the New York Fire Department and New York Police Department who rushed into those buildings heedless of their own lives that they might save a few. You see, in this country, there are certain things that are etched into our collective memory, even if we weren't alive to see it. Pearl Harbor, D-Day, the dropping of the atomic bomb, the moon landing, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11, Tom Brady's 28-3 comeback in Super Bowl 51. (laughs) These things are the things that if you weren't there, you still know about them because they're talked about all the time. They're the things that you tell your kids about. Now, believe me, it took a lot of discipline not to just put like a dozen sports-related ones in there. And I know that you guys have different things that are etched in your mind too. Events like these we've rehashed with friends to see what details stick out in our minds to see if there's anything that we've forgotten. And this, my friends, is the backdrop for our text this morning. Today's message is aptly titled, 
Never forget God's faithfulness. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write that down. Never forget God's faithfulness. Ryan did a great job last week highlighting for us how miraculous the Jordan River crossing was for Israel and all that it meant in God's fulfillment of the promises he had made to them. But we pick them up here in chapter 4, and they're a nation that is now a full generation removed from the crossing of the Red Sea. All of the folks that crossed had passed on, and their children and grandchildren are now making a similar crossing into the land that was promised to them. So let's think back 40 years. The year is 1982. Many in this congregation were not even a twinkle in their father's eye at that point. Although some of you were in school and actually remember the first time crop tops, high-waisted jeans, and mullets were fashionable. There are some things we should never forget and some things that we should forget immediately. (laughs) But seriously, if you can think back, 1982, Ronald Reagan was in his second year as president. Magic Johnson just won his second NBA Finals MVP. Olivia Newton-John, Survivor, and Joan Jett topped the music charts. Steven Spielberg had the top two grossing movies of the year with E.T. and Indiana Jones. Now, obviously, the things that I've mentioned are super trivial, right? But there isn't really much collectively that we remember because we don't orient our lives in this country to remember those things. Not without the help of the internet, of course. And outside of those few transcendent 9-11 moments that we celebrate only on the day that they happen, we just have a short collective memory. Not so with the nation of Israel, as we find them in today's text. Their entire calendar, their system of government, their economy, their very existence on quail and manna was set up to remember. It was set up to remind them of what had happened 40 years ago, when the Lord delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and set them on their way to the promised land. And the culmination, the most important festival of the year, was held every year to remind the people of God what had happened to them at Passover, to demonstrate God's power and faithfulness. And just very briefly, for those that might be unfamiliar with the story of Passover, it comes from Exodus 11 and 12. Moses, the leader of God's people, had been asking the Pharaoh of Egypt to let the Israelites go, but Pharaoh kept refusing. He had hardened his heart to God. And so God sent judgment on the people of Egypt, but spared the Israelites who had put the blood of their spotless lambs on their doorposts on the night of Passover. The angel of death would then pass over those houses. And this was the final plague that finally broke the Pharaoh, and he told Moses and the people to leave. So God delivered the people out of Egypt and led them across the Red Sea towards the promised land. But because of the lack of faith on, part of the, on the part of the Israelites, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of that generation that had fled Egypt had passed away. And then we fast forward 40 years to the very week and we find God's people poised again to take possession of the promised land. And so they began to cross the Jordan River. And we will see today in in the text in verse 19 that the feast of Passover was in fact coming up. And so this was on their minds. And the connection between what had happened and what was about to happen would be very evident. And so we move into chapter 4 and we will see the people of God finally set foot in the promised land. 
God is faithful to his promise. And this chapter gives us some insight as to what we should be looking for. So I want to pick up the chapter in verse 1. Joshua 4, verse 1, and it says this. I'm going to read through verse 10 to start here. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell them to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And so we see the nation pass over into the promised land from the desert of wandering and judgment of an entire generation to the land flowing with milk and honey. But this crossing wasn't as easy as it sounds in the text. This required an act of faith on the part of Joshua, an act of faith on the part of the priests carrying the ark, an act of faith on the part of everyone who crossed, as well as on those 12 men whom Joshua selected to gather the memorial stones. Each act of obedience came from faith that Yahweh would remain faithful. I've got a simple outline for us this morning. And the first point is this. God's people respond in faith. God's people respond in faith to God's faithfulness. God's people respond in faith to God's faithfulness. You see, at this time, the Jordan River was at flood stage. What was normally less than a football field across and relatively shallow at various points could be up to over a mile across and dozens of feet deep in the middle. It was a treacherous crossing at this point in time. One couldn't expect millions of people to swim across the flooded river. It would have been impossible. But Joshua hears from the Lord that the time has come to cross over. And as Nick pointed out in chapter 1, the strength and courage that God commands Joshua to have is born not of Joshua's character, but out of God's character. Joshua has seen the work of the Lord before, and so he responds in faith. He commands the priest to take the ark into the water. Now, if I'm one of those priests, I'm probably thinking to myself, what is going on? You want me to carry this nation's most valuable possession right out into the water to let it get swept away? 
It seems crazy, but the priests respond in faith. Now, I don't know if any of you played the Oregon Trail game growing up, or maybe even you played it last month with your kids, ending in the entire wagon party dying of thirst before you even left Kansas. Oh, maybe that was just me. I don't know. But if I had the choice between waiting for conditions to improve or caulking the Ark of the Covenant and floating it across or fording the Jordan River, I can tell you which one of the three I'm not going to choose. You see, it took faith for them to obey, to step into the water. You see, the symbolism is rich here. The Ark of the Covenant was the specific place on earth where God's Spirit dwelt among His people. And it would lead the people from death in the wilderness to life in the promised land. And it was the Ark of the Covenant that stopped the waters and allowed God's people to cross on dry land, just as the people had crossed the Red Sea on dry land. So seeing the water stopped up, the people of Israel quickly walked over. They also responded in faith that the waters would hold while they crossed. This wasn't like the Red Sea crossing in the sense that there wasn't an army bearing down on them. They weren't forced to cross. They could have said, okay, we're just going to wait here for things to get better till the flood goes down. Or they could have said, we're just going to stay here with Reuben and Gad and make our camp here. We don't need to cross over. But they didn't. They responded in faith that God would hold back the waters. They knew that the Lord had been faithful before, and so they trusted him again. And this, dear Christian, is a picture of our faith. You see, Jesus Christ is the better Ark of the Covenant. He is God in the flesh, God's very present made presence made manifest in human form. And Jesus has gone before us across the water. He has passed into death and came out on the other side alive and victorious. And he has invited us to follow him. When we reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives as Christ followers, we have to start with the gospel. This is the good news. This is the best news and the way that God has demonstrated the ultimate faithfulness to his people. You see, God created the world, and it was good. And he created people, and they were good. But because of the deceit of our ancient enemy, the devil, we were deceived into joining the rebellion against God's good order. And the natural consequence for our sin was separation from God's presence and removal from Eden, the perfect place that God had created for us to dwell with him. And ever since then, mankind has been longing for that return to Eden, for that return to the true promised land. And so at various times and in various ways, God has reached down to humanity, and he has promised them that there would be a time when he would redeem what was lost. And Ryan spoke about several of these promises last week. But humanity, you and I included, Love the darkness so much. Our souls were so depraved and wicked that there was no way for us to see the light apart from God breaking in. And so God, because of his deep love and faithfulness, put on human flesh as Jesus the Christ. He lived the life of obedience that we have all chosen not to, 
so that by his gracious death on the cross, the debt of our sin would be paid, our guilt and our shame would be washed away, and a path back to Eden would be paved. Jesus defeated our enemies and rose again, showing that his life was an effective sacrifice. He ransomed his people, and he put death to shame. And Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, in the place of authority, waiting for the fullness of his people to be escorted back into the promised land where we will live with him in perfect peace, just as God created it to be. You see, while we were yet sinners, still enemies of God, wandering in the wilderness of our own sin, Christ died for us and took upon himself the iniquity of us all. God's presence condescended to humanity, not just in the Ark of the Covenant to enable his people to cross the Jordan, but it condescended in the presence of the man, Jesus Christ, so that we might have everlasting life in him. And all that he asks of us is that we respond in faith. God's people respond in faith to God's faithfulness. This is the gospel. And for the members of this church, we have made our response in faith. We are publicly declaring our allegiance to Jesus as our king through baptism. And as we think back to the day of our baptism, we think about what that act symbolizes. Baptism is a public statement that says, although I have not physically seen Christ, I trust him as my king and as my authority. This is a statement of faith. If you think about this, it doesn't really make sense. It can only be a miraculous work of the Spirit in us. Even though we've been emailed hundreds of times about it, we don't send $1,000 to the Nigerian prince who has lost his kingdom and needs our help to get his treasure back. We don't put our hope and faith in far-off things and places. At least we shouldn't. And why don't we? Why is it that we feel confidence in putting our faith and hope in Christ? Because none but Christ can back his promise of eternal life, of whole humanity, with an entire history of faithfulness, with personal sacrifice, and with proven efficacy. It is God's faithfulness that drives and motivates his people to respond by saying publicly, Yes, Lord, I will lay down my life for you because you first laid down your life for me. When you were baptized, you were buried under the water with Christ. Your old self is dead, and you were raised to a new life with Christ. And this has an effect then on how we choose to live our lives. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. In the New Testament there, just after the Gospels, in Acts, and then Romans chapter 6. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read this whole section here. Dead to sin, alive to God. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace." And so, brothers and sisters, whatever it is you're navigating in your life right now, whatever temptation, whatever hardship, whatever difficulties in relationships, if you have put your faith in Christ, you can be sure that you have been set free from sin and that you will one day be raised to life with Christ. Friend, if you are here today and you believe this gospel, if you have decided to follow Jesus as your king, but you have not publicly declared your faith through baptism, please come to talk to one of the pastors after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what faithful obedience look like, looks like in that area. And if you have been baptized, you've taken that important step in faith in responding to God's faithfulness. Just as the nation of Israel passed through the waters of the Jordan in faith that God would deliver them into the promised land, we also have stated clearly where our allegiance is, and how we are going to choose to live our lives in community with God's people, giving Jesus the authority as king in our lives. Let's look back in Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. 4.11 And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So this is sort of a sub-point, but what is interesting here is that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over before their brothers and sisters. Remember that these tribes had their land allotments on the safe side of the river. They could have said, no, we're good. We're going to stay over here. You're on your own. But they were faithful as well to their brothers and sisters. And there's something to the communal nature of the two and a half tribes crossing over before their brothers and sisters. As believers, we engage in this spiritual journey together. Although each Israelite chose individually to cross the Jordan, they didn't cross alone. The whole community of God's people crosses together 
and bears witness to the miracle. And when a new believer is baptized into the church, that individual is responding in faith to God's faithfulness. But the whole community bears witness to this miracle and welcomes that brother or sister into the church and agrees to be responsible for their discipleship. And this is one of the reasons why we believe at this church that baptism should ordinarily coincide with joining a local expression of God's people. Because we profess the same faith in the same gospel, our desire and hope is that we disciple one another in committed relationships under the authority of Scripture. I love the way that Paul addresses the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, it says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We join together because we are called to that same hope in Jesus. Just as the Israelites shared their common hope that Yahweh would deliver them into the promised land, as a body of believers, we work together in gentleness and humility, sharing the common hope that Jesus will return for his saints. God's people respond in faith to God's faithfulness. Let's look back in chapter 4, verse 14. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all of the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." We see here that God remembers his promise to Joshua from chapter 3, and he raises him up just as he said he would. Remember that, Jesus, that Joshua is a type of Jesus. He is a picture to the Israelites of something better that was to come. He mediates the word of the Lord to the people of Israel, and he leads them into the promised land. And he is obedient to God. He models to the people the strength and courage that can only come from God's faithfulness. And once everyone is safely across, Joshua commands the priests to come up out of the river 
and immediately the river goes back to where it was before. This crossing and stopping up of the river was miraculous. God had again demonstrated his faithfulness to his people. And so they encamped at Gilgal. It was a several-mile walk from the Jordan toward Jericho. And there Joshua demonstrates his obedience to God again. And he sets up the 12 memorial stones that had been brought up out of the Jordan. Here he makes explicit the reason for the stones. It's so that the nation of Israel won't forget what happened. It's to help them remember God's faithfulness. So here's the second point today. God's people remember God's faithfulness. God's people remember God's faithfulness. God knew that the temptation of that generation would be to forget his provision. It was a very short period of time after God parted the Red Sea that the people started to complain and forget God's faithfulness. So God wanted to give this generation a tangible reminder of his faithfulness and another opportunity to obey his commands. Joshua says that the memorial is so that the whole world may know that the Lord is mighty and so that the people will fear the Lord forever. We, like the Israelites, are prone to forgetfulness. We instantly forget what God has done for us. From Sunday to Sunday, as the kids say, the struggle is real. The struggle is real to remember and recall the work of the Spirit in our lives. We are like all those seeds sown by the sower that don't land in the rich soil. We get choked out by the cares of this world. The enemy comes and plucks the gospel from our hearts. Or we start the week off strong and then we burn out and often feel even worse than if we had not started off on the right path in the first place. But thanks be to God for his mercy and his grace because none of that is surprising to him. Because even when we were still sinners, wandering in the desert, he came and died for us. And yet God still calls us to faithfulness. Because he has already been faithful. He is faithful. And he will continue to be faithful to us. And so we do our best not white-knuckling it on our own, not just trying harder, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and working through us in this church to respond and to remember and to put those spiritual disciplines to use. I've heard it said before many times that there's a reason why they are called disciplines. It's because it's not something that we naturally want to do It's not something that comes easy to us. It is a work to remember. It costs us something. Our time, our emotions, energy. But in doing so, we are better equipped to face the world and its brokenness with our foundation firmly set on the rock of Christ Jesus. God knows that the world is broken and that the world will beat us down. 
because he first experienced it himself. And so, brothers and sisters, my question to you is, how have we structured our lives to remember the truth of the gospel? This morning, I'm going to make three practical suggestions for you on how we do this. Three practical suggestions to you. Number one, preach the gospel to one another regularly. Preach the gospel to one another regularly. One of the things I love the most about our new member conversations is that I get to hear the gospel preached. We ask each prospective member, tell us what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And why is this important? Let's take a look at Revelation 12. We just studied through this, but it said, the saints, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You see, the saints, they overcome the enemy by their proclamation of the gospel, not just in what they say, but how they've lived their lives. We remember the Lord's faithfulness publicly, and we participate in defeating the devil. The more we testify of the Lord's goodness and faithfulness, the more honor and glory are given to his name. And the more we fulfill our ultimate purpose here on earth, and the more the gospel will spread. One of the things I'm going to ask us to do this week is to take turns remembering the gospel out loud to each other. Some might call this preaching. When was the last time you preached to your neighbor? When was the last time you remembered the gospel out loud? You see, it's a real truism that if we don't remember, we forget. And I agree with what Ryan said last week. The temptation is to look at this text and to think about all of the Jordan rivers that are in our life, all of the Jordan rivers that God has brought us across. And we want to make this about us. But that view actually undermines the reality, the grand reality of what this text is pointing to. This text is pointing to God's faithfulness. We respond because God has first been faithful. He has led his people out of bondage to sin and has passed through the waters of judgment himself so that we may enter the promised land on dry ground. This is the gospel. All we did was sin and complain and whine and act unfaithfully. But while we were still in our wretched state, Christ died for us and called us to himself. This is the hope and the joy that this promise brings. That we can have everlasting life with God and his people. And this hope and joy, it brings far more joy and hope than any of the present suffering that we go through. And to be sure, even as we gather this day and hear of the suffering that those in our congregation are facing. The hope is greater. And this by no means discounts or minimizes the countless other ways that God has been faithful to us. 
But that faithfulness has to start with the fact that I was a sinner, and by grace alone, I can be made right with God. And everything else has to flow out of that. So preach the gospel to one another regularly so that our hope and our affections might be drawn out of this world and on to Christ. The second thing is this. Practice family worship. Practice family worship. We saw in our text this morning that the memorial stones were an aid to the families of Israel in teaching their children about the Lord's faithfulness and power. This goes back to the command that gives the people that God gives the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Go ahead and turn back there one book back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to read chapter 6 verse 1 through 12. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 12. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your, the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, this is the greatest thing that we can do as people. This is our purpose, to love God, to bring him glory. And as parents, aunts, uncles, teachers, adults in this church, we all have a role to play in teaching our children. We often talk about being good stewards of our resources, of our time, our talents, and treasures. How we steward our human resources is no different. We organize our lives to reflect the place Jesus holds as our king. This includes our duty to first teach our children of God's faithfulness and then to continue to remind them so that they don't forget. And for students in here who are not out of the house yet, you have the privilege of participating in this process too. Because you will have many conversations with your brothers and sisters and friends, many opportunities to remind each other of the gospel. 
You have the opportunity to connect with your friends in ways that adults cannot. And if you believe in the truth of the gospel, you are an ambassador for Christ wherever you go. You don't have to be an adult to remind the people of the good news. And so one very simple, practical way to do this is to make family worship part of your routine. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Read God's word together. Could be a kid's Bible if you have kids that are younger. Sing songs of praise and worship. Also, it could be the hippo song if you have kids that are younger. And then pray together. We model this at our community groups. A simple passage of scripture that could be a jumping off point for deeper conversations. A simple song or two that point to God's faithfulness and a time for prayer to lift up the things that are on our heart and to remind each other of God's goodness. Make this part of your regular remembrance of the gospel. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm single, or maybe my family is not eager to participate with me, find people in this church who want to participate with you. Connect with folks from your community group or other friends here at church, and do it together. So that was number two, practice family worship. Lastly, number three, participate in communion. Participate in communion. We saw in our story today a a vivid picture of the salvation story. God's presence, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, went down into the water, separating the wilderness and the promised land, symbolizing God's judgment. God held back the water so that his people could reach the promised land unharmed if they responded in faith to him. Ryan spent time talking about the ark last week, but Jesus is the better ark. Jesus stepped into the waters of death, took the judgment of our sin upon himself, and held back the judgment from falling on us. And he has paved the way for us to live in the promised land with him if we respond in faith. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 25. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. All right, this is the wrong passage. Time out. (laughs) My apologies. Everyone turn to Matthew with me, if you would. Matthew 26, 26, not 25, 26. My apologies for the typo. I wish that I didn't have to apologize for typos, but being a high school teacher, my students are very quick to point out when I uh, make a mistake. (laughs) Matthew 26, 26. And I'm just going to read it to you. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." See, Christ spells out for his disciples what his death means. 
and what this meal means. It means that there is a new covenant, a new way to get to the promised land, to be made righteous. And it's only through Christ's body and blood. And so every week we take communion as a way to remember Christ's faithfulness to his people, even unto death. And when we do this, we are proclaiming his victorious death until he comes back. Friends, this remembrance meal that we share together is the high point of our liturgy. That's why it comes at the end. It's the climax of it. Because it is the ultimate reminder of who God is to us. He is the one who, because of his great love for his people, sent his only son to die, that he might rescue us and defeat our enemies, enemies that we could never defeat on our own. The body and the blood remind us that Jesus has been faithful He is faithful and will continue to be faithful to his people. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, from ancient Israel crossing over the Jordan to taking communion this morning, it is a cycle of remembrance and response that was initiated by God on our behalf. You see, we can love because he loved us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Mission Fellowship, as we transition now into that time of response and remembrance, let us be a people that never forgets God's faithfulness and a people who respond to that faithfulness with all of our hope and our trust placed firmly in Jesus Christ, our King. Amen? Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up. Heavenly Father, we see your faithfulness painted throughout Scripture. We see the work that you have done on our behalf, giving yourself even to death on the cross, that we may be made right before you. As we respond this morning, Lord, in worship and in communion, may it be heavy on our hearts the faithfulness that you have shown. And by your spirit working in us and through us in this congregation, may we respond back in faithfulness to you and to each other. Come what may, Lord, you are good and you are faithful. Remind us of that this morning. In your name we pray, amen.